Welcome to From the Pulpit, the sermon podcast of St. Matthias Anglican Church in Katy, Texas. Today's sermon was delivered by Father Jason Grote. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to study your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our ears, and our eyes to see and to know and to embrace the truth that you have revealed to us in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Today we heard St. Matthew's account of the crucifixion for our gospel lesson. And as I prepared for today, I realized that based on that lesson, I really had a plethora of choices from which to choose. I mean, I know it's Palm Sunday, but our text is that of the crucifixion. And the truth is that almost any passage in the Bible, New Testament or Old, could really be used in reference to that lesson. I mean, I could turn to any of the Old Testament sacrifices. I could turn to the Garden of Eden and the expulsion from the Garden and the ensuing curse. I could turn to the Psalms, such as Psalm 22, that portray the dark day of crucifixion, or even Psalm 100, or 118, uh, which speaks those words that we said with the blessing of the palms, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I could turn to the prophecies of Isaiah or Jeremiah or a host of other ones. We often speak a phrase when considering the Old and the New Testaments, and it goes something like this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In other words, they're not two separate things. One leads to the other. One explains the other. The Old Testament is understood in the context of the story of Jesus and the things that Jesus does. There's a story after Jesus' resurrection on the road to Emmaus. It's a story I'm going to come back to on Thursday night with my sermon for Monday Thursday. If you're not familiar with it, we actually have some DVDs about that story. They're next door. So if you want to take one to watch or if you want to take one to give to a neighbor or a friend, feel free. Anyway, Jesus is walking with two disciples. And they didn't recognize him after his resurrection. And after an interplay, we're told by Luke that Jesus speaks to them concerning himself. And this is what he says. He says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now remember, Jesus didn't have the New Testament. These gospel accounts weren't written yet. The epistles of Paul weren't written yet. Heck, Paul wasn't even a convert to Christ at that point. So Jesus is using the Old Testament scriptures. And as Luke said, Jesus turns to Moses. Not the exact story of Moses, but Moses in the sense of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And from Genesis on all the way through to, to the prophets, the last ones who would speak God's word before Jesus came, Jesus teaches these disciples about himself through them. And the point of me saying that is that Jesus Christ was the revelation. He was the fulfillment of all that came before. The sacrifices, the prophecies, the psalms, the temple, the feasts, the promised king, the hoped-for Messiah. 
all of it pointed to Christ. They were shadows of things to come, and in Jesus they were revealed in true reality. The word of God written is about one thing, what God did through the word of God incarnate. So today I want to choose from that plethora of verses and stories and build upon that premise. And I want to look in particular at a verse that we say every week that refers to the sacrifice in the crucifixion account that we just heard read for our gospel. It's a verse, actually a part of two verses, that we use in what we call the comfortable words. After the exhortation, after the confession, after the absolution, when the priest says, if you've truly repented of your sins, you're forgiven by God, the priest then says, hear what comfortable words our Savior Christ saith unto all those who truly turn to him. And then we have two sayings of Jesus, including the infamous John 3.16, so God loved the world. Then we have one from St. Paul. This is a faithful saying worthy of all men to be received. And then we have one from St. John's first epistle. And I've noticed as I say them each week to you in the liturgy that some of you actually move your own mouths, reciting them quietly to your own hearts and your own minds, which is really a good practice. The verse I want to consider today comes to us from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, I don't have time this morning to unpack everything in that verse, unless you want me to preach for an hour, and I don't think you want me to do that. So I'm going to focus only on that nice, fancy, dancy word that's in there propitiation. Our verse is from 1 John chapter 2. But this isn't the only use of this verse in the scriptures. John says two chapters later in 1 John 4, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And St. Paul, well, he uses it in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. In speaking about Jesus, Paul says, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. We hear it every week. And we may have an idea of its meaning based on the context of the comfortable words. But the word propitiation isn't really a word used in today's day and age. So I thought it would be good to discuss it. So what does this word propitiation mean? And there's two aspects to it. The first pertains to the idea of God's wrath. And the second has to do with reconciliation with God. In a classical sense... Propitiation is defined as appeasing a God's wrath. It's offering something to a God, a sacrifice that will help stop the wrath or punishment of that God. If you ever seen that movie, I think it came out 20, 30 years ago, Joe versus the Volcano with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. And that's the premise of the movie. Tom Hanks' character is asked to be the human sacrifice required to appease the fire God of that island's volcano. Now, the etymology of the word actually has the sense of happiness, to make one happy. The word family from which propitiation comes from is halaras. 
And it's actually where we get the word hilarious. And I don't think we translate it that way in our comfortable words, but you can see how that would mean to appease wrath or to make one happy again. The underlying premise with this understanding is that disobedience results in punishment or death. It's built into our DNA right from the get-go. In the garden, God says, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you do, what? You shall surely die. When we get to the flood with Noah, God repents himself of what? The evil. And he cleanses the earth because of the people's disobedience and wickedness. And that's just two examples from the scriptures. The whole covenantal structure is that way. In the ancient covenants and in the covenant laid out in the Torah, obedience equals blessing, disobedience equals cursings. And just as one example from the scriptures, let me read for you a few verses from Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26, 14 through 18 read, But if you do not obey me, and this is God speaking, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of the heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more. For your sins. And then he goes on even with more than that. I mean, it's pretty severe, isn't it? But it's important to know that it's not because God is some kind of mean God because of this. It's a covenantal and righteous judgment and justice. J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, that it's not that God is an angry God like we are. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. In other words, it's the just due of our sins. So we're left in a quandary, aren't we? We sin, and we have nothing upon which we can stand. There's nothing that we can do for our sin. And there's no reason at all for God to overlook our sin, is there? And that's a problem. Because God's in a quandary too, isn't he? I mean, if God is a just God, and he is, then hasn't God sort of tied his own hands? His own righteousness, his own justice requires that we be punished. And so how can he show mercy? What would be the basis for that mercy? What would be the basis for God overlooking the injustice of our sin and overlooking the just punishment that we deserve for our sin? And the answer, of course, is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. As being the righteous one, he not only perfectly fulfills the righteous and holy aspects of God, but he also bears the death. He takes the curse upon himself, meaning the punishment, meaning the death 
of mankind's sin. And this was something that nothing else and no one else could do except Jesus. No animal, no human, no nothing. Only Christ. Some of you were in my Sunday school class a few years ago. And we were talking about a couple of things. And I gave this example to explain why animal sacrifices were not an acceptable sacrifice. My brother, many of you know him, Father Josh. Pretty comfortable secular job in the higher-ups of Home Depot. Anyways, he was able to buy a number of years ago a 50th anniversary special edition Corvette. It was sweet. Well, he still is. He has it. (laughs) Now, when I use this illustration, his son, Little Jag as we called him, had just started driving. And so I said, imagine if Little Jag was told by his father not to touch his nice car. But then Little Jag took the car out against his father's wishes, and he drove it all around, and in the process of doing so, he wrecked the car. Now, what would it take to make that right? with his father. Wouldn't a part of that be restoring to his father that which he damaged? I mean, imagine if his son walked into the room, threw his dad some car keys and said, sorry, dad, but here now we're even. And he throws him some keys and says, I got you a new car. And then his dad walked out to the driveway only to find a Yugo or a Ford Fiat. Now, while those cars may be nice, what aren't they? They're certainly not a 50th anniversary special edition Corvette. Just because it was a new car does not mean it replaces that which was broken. Well, that's like the sacrifices of animals and goats. That's like the imperfect sacrifices of man towards God. Those things are all less than what God required. Man cannot offer an animal because an animal's life is less than that of a man's life. And God's justice required man's life. And man could not offer himself because man in sin is less than the perfect man God created in Eden. Justice required a special edition Corvette, not a Ford Fiat. So the only solution, the only appeasement, the only sacrifice, the only propitiation could be that of the perfect man. Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation in the sense that he appeases the wrath of God against us through his perfect sacrifice. But yet, there's also another understanding of this term propitiation. And this comes not from the classical sense of the Greek word, but from the Hebrew and the Old Testament understanding and imagery. If we think back to the Old Testament, we have the tabernacle with Moses and later the temple with Solomon, both patterned the same way. And most of us are familiar with it. You actually heard me say some of this last week. First, there was the courtyard. And in the midst of the courtyard, you had the holy place. And within the midst of the holy place, you had the holy of holies. And in the midst of the holy of holies was what? The Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25 records for us God's command concerning the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm just going to read verses 21 and 22. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, 
of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. The mercy seat was God's throne in particular. It was the place where God's presence would be made known on the earth. He even said, I will commune with you from there. Again, I don't have time to go through all the imagery, but the structure of the temple is really a picture of creation with Nod and Eden and the garden in the midst of Eden and the tree in the midst of the garden. And the veil which separated the Holy of Holies with the cherubim stitched into it and the altar of incense standing before it all patterned the cherubim and the flaming swords that God placed to guard the way back to Eden. Or to the garden. The temple portrayed heaven and earth meeting together just as the garden of Eden did. But yet it was still divided because of sin. Just as man could not enter the garden of Eden again, so man could not enter into the presence of God. Say it another way, sin literally resulted in the broken fellowship and worship of God in the garden. Not just spiritually or figuratively, but actually physically. And the veil in the temple showed that, along with the Day of Atonement and the Mercy Seat. We all know from our passage this past Sunday, and from some of what I preached on last week, only the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, could go behind that veil. It was the one day a year time when in shadow form, so to speak, God and man were at one. Atonement at one mint. And do you know what the high priest did when he went behind that veil? He sprinkled blood on the mercy seat of the ark. Now the word for mercy seat and atonement are actually the same in Hebrew. But the interesting part in all of this, and why I bring it up, is that the word that the translators use for mercy seat in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and what we call the Septuagint is the same word or derivation of the word used for propitiation. That means the imagery put forth by Paul and Romans and John in, in his first epistle when using that word is that of the mercy seat and all that the Day of Atonement meant for the Israelites. One writer said, John was thoroughly familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, as shown by his use of Hebrew modes of thought, so that it would be natural for him to use the word propitiation in its Old Testament rather than in its classical sense, and say that Jesus Christ the righteous is the covering or the atonement for our sins, thus harmonizing with the meaning of the verb halaskamai in Greek, propitiation. And this imagery is heightened even more when we consider what happened when Christ died. When Christ died, we're told that he breathed his last and he gave up the ghost. That's when I paused. Some people genuflect at that point. And then what happened? The veil was rent. The true sacrifice was made that could atone for sin, that could overcome the division between God and man, and thereby reconcile God and man and restore that Edenic relationship. Friends, Christ doesn't just offer a righteous sacrifice that stays the wrath of God upon us. Christ in his own body is the mercy seat, the propitiation. He's God's presence on earth. He is where the worship of God truly occurs. 
In him we commune with God. And in him God and man are made at one. That's the true propitiation. That's what we celebrate today as we witness him entering into the holy city, chanting, Hosanna, Lord, save us. That's what we celebrate as we hear his crucifixion account and the sacrifice he made. And that's what we celebrate when we partake of this, the Lord's Supper, each week. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We pray that God's Spirit has spoken to you and blessed you today through this sermon. If you would like to learn more about St. Matthias Anglican Church, you can visit us on the web at www.stmkaty.org.